We have been journeying to the cross for quite a number of weeks, focusing on the seven last words of Jesus at the cross, and my deep hope is that it is preparing us for Holy Week in a whole new way. For weeks now, we have been anticipating the cross based on the few phrases that Jesus said along the way as he hung there at Calvary. This morning, we come to another statement he made, a very brief one and yet a very profound one. And we have this sermon broken up into three parts this day, so we will journey together with the message in a slightly different manner as well. First, Lorna will come up and offer the scripture reading. Please take your Bibles. If you didn't bring one today, there should be a blue pew Bible that you can use. I'll be reading this morning from John chapter 19, verse 28. And in your pew Bible, it's found on page 768. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. This is the word of the Lord. He said, I thirst. And in his thirst, Christ is human. Imagine the one who is known as the water of life saying, I thirst. Imagine the fount of every blessing, as we sang a moment ago, being thirsty. This is the only statement that Jesus makes from the cross where he refers to his physical needs. But consider what led up to this thirst. Rewind back to the Garden of Gethsemane. He is already sweating. He is already losing fluids. And then he is carted off to multiple trials at the hands of the Sanhedrin and Herod and Pilate. And then he's imprisoned for an evening and then he's carted off to another trial. And then the horrible flogging, the loss of blood, the loss of other fluids, and then forced to carry his cross. And then the crucifixion itself where he is in this constant state of exhalation and what he wants to do is push himself back up to where he can just inhale and then go back down. But as you do that, your mouth opens up And dries and swells. And it is a horrific thirst that you have. Which is why in Psalm 22 it says, My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My understanding is in the Swedish language, the words for thirst and the words for fire are virtually interchangeable. And a terribly parched mouth and throat can feel like fire. He said, I thirst. And those two words are so profound, first of all, because it depicts Jesus in all of his humanness and in all of his suffering, vulnerable to the physical pain that you and I face, vulnerable to utter isolation and a sense of abandonment, and yes, vulnerable to the most terrible of thirsts, physical thirst. Some of us have witnessed that very, very difficult thirst on the part of someone whom we are witnessing who are dying. They can be very thirsty, and sometimes some of us have assisted them by feeding them ice chips. Many of you know what I'm talking about. Or perhaps you would take a straw full of water, just a little bit of water, and you place it 
in a glass or a pitcher of water and you place your finger at one top and you have just a little bit of water in there and then you very, very, very ever so gently place it in the person's mouth, usually a loved one's mouth, and you gently let go and they can have a little bit of water to soothe that terrible, terrible sense of thirst. Or, as was with a family member of mine, my mother, as she was dying of cancer, I remember quite often... You would have these little uh, plastic sticks with a small sponge at the end of it, and we would soak it in water and then place the sponge in the person's mouth or at least wet their lips with it, moisten their lips with it, just to give them a little bit of relief. Many of you know what I'm talking about. And there was an instrument similar to that in the first century when persons were being crucified. Yes, it was a bit larger and it was more primitive, but just as Jesus was hanging in and, and pain and agony and thirst, and he said, I thirst, and someone dipped a sponge in fluid and then offered it to him. In the same manner, it served the very same purpose, which was to soothe that fiery, that fiery thirst that he had. He experienced a raging, catastrophic thirst himself. Some have tried to deny that, by the way. There are some who have tried to deny that Jesus suffered and was in pain, and even died on the cross. That makes them feel uneasy. That humanizes Jesus too much. There were ancient Greek cults that tried to say that. You had the Docetics, which was a heretical group of Christians, actually, that John goes after in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, who said, basically, Jesus really didn't come in the flesh, which John said was heresy. In fact, he refers to those people who deny Jesus' humanity as antichrists. Read it in 1st and 2nd John. But these people tried to deny the fact that he suffered, that he thirsted. You even have the Muslim belief that Jesus actually did not die on the cross, did not suffer and die. He merely appeared to suffer and die. And it was actually either Simon of Cyrene or Judas Iscariot who somehow magically wound up on the cross, thereby helping Jesus circumvent the pain and, yes, the thirst. But John knew better. I think that's one reason among many that John's gospel is the latest one written. I think for one thing, he wanted to add the material that he saw did not exist yet in the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But I think also he wanted to say, I was there. I witnessed it. I saw him on the cross. I saw him cross-eyed with pain. I saw him with his mouth hanging open. I saw him with the parched throat. I saw him thirsty. John wanted to get that witness down so that we would know ourselves that Jesus did indeed thirst. What a profound picture. The very water of life. Thirsty. Which is why we can understand in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews says, he can sympathize with us in every way. Yes, he is the great high priest, but he can sympathize with us in every way. Because he was tested in every way. And yes, he thirsted in every way, just like you and me. And now he hangs on the cross with this raging thirst. And the drops of water, think about this, the drops of water that he so longed for became the showers of grace and showers of blessing for you and for me. By his thirst, we see his humanity and his suffering. 
And my hope is that we can encapsulate this with this first litany of thirst. If you'll refer in the first column to, we thirst for your son who suffered. And if you would, stand as Micah leads us in this first reading. And we will all join together with the first line following. As Jim just said, we'll start together. And you are reading the bold where it says all. We thirst, O God, for your Son who thirsted for us. He thirsted to save us. Let us thirst to serve him. Let us thirst to praise him. Let us thirst to be with him. We thirst, O God, for your Son who suffered for us on the cross. My life is poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. We thirst, O God, for your Son who thirsted for us. I thirst. And in his thirst, we recognize his humanity and his suffering. But please hear me on this. You also recognize his sovereignty. You recognize his sovereignty. It's interesting if you look at the verse there, verse 29 of chapter 18 of John, because before he says, I thirst, there's a curious phrase there. It says, and then Jesus, knowing all was fulfilled, (laughs) said, I thirst. Do you follow that? No, he had a purpose beyond his physical need for water. Knowing that all was fulfilled, he said, I thirst. What's going on here? And how do we see his sovereignty here over against mere humanity? We've talked about this before here at Brookwood, that the previous cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is really one of the most beautiful statements in all of Scripture. In part, maybe he was talking about his agony and sense of abandonment and isolation, but all the more. (laughs) Here we are. Somebody help me. What was Jesus referred to by other people more than anything else? What what title did they give him? Somebody help me with that. Rabbi, meaning teacher. Tut Cornegate, a musician, knew that. Think about that. (laughs) Rabbi. The divine rabbi is on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus just didn't come up with that statement. Many of you know where it is. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as you read that incredible psalm, you see that Jesus is reading himself back into something that he had prophesied centuries before. Now, I want you to think about that. By crying this out on the cross, Jesus is saying, I am fulfilling my divine mission, which was talked about, which I talked about centuries before, and you find it there in a psalm, which begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But look at how it paints the picture of the crucifixion that occurs centuries later. Let me just read a few excerpts. 
Beginning at verse 7, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Do you remember the thieves? Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Later on, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. I'm poured out like water. I'm dehydrated. It has melted away within me. Later on, verse 16, dogs have surrounded me. You always had that at the crucifixion. You had wild dogs there. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones, which in the Hebrew means they can see all of my ribs. That's what it means literally. I can count all of my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Is that not a painting? Is that not a portrait of what's going on at Golgotha? And this psalm ends in such a powerful, powerful note. The last two verses, prosperity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord, including us. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That's us saying four great words. He has done it. To me, that's like a precursor to it is finished. He has done it. Now, do you catch this? By saying, I thirst on the cross, Jesus is not merely disclosing his suffering. He is revealing his sovereignty. He is saying, I am fulfilling the commission that my father gave to me. And it is of my own accord. It is my own decision. And it is leading to a gift of redemption for you. Think about this. In one sense, Jesus hanging on the cross was completely out of control. But at the same time, he was completely, yes, in control. He tried to drill that home to the disciples who just didn't get it. Tried to do it three times we know of if you study Mark 8, 9, and 10. Tried to do that as they were heading to Jerusalem, to Golgotha. They never did get it. Others didn't get it. I love how he talked about it in John chapter 10 a little bit earlier when he talked about himself being the good shepherd. And he said, I lay down my life for my sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This is the charge I have received from my Father. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Let me tell you, the crucifixion was not a mistake. It was not an accident. It was not a mishap. It was not a miscue. It was intentional. It was the deliberate self-offering of the good shepherd for you and for me that we might be set free, that we might receive that incredible gift of eternity that begins even now. So when Jesus said, I thirst, he was telling us, I am fulfilling my purpose, I am fulfilling my mission, and it is all for you. He's not just our suffering Savior. By saying these two simple words, I thirst, he is awful, again, disclosing that he is sovereign that he is indeed in control. And I think that's good news for you and me when our lives are feeling a bit out of control, remembering that indeed he is, and in all things that happen, he will work them for good, even as it worked for good as he cried out in incredible thirst. He is not only our suffering Savior who is thirsty, he is the sovereign one as well. Let us encapsulate that good news with the second reading of the Litany of Thirst as Jody comes forward to lead us in that. And again, we will begin by doing the first line together. Let us stand together and remain standing for the song to follow.
Please join me as we read together. We thirst, O God, for your Son who thirsted for us. He thirsted to save us. Let us thirst to serve him. Let us thirst to praise him. Let us thirst to be with him. We thirst, O God, for your Son, who was still sovereign while suffering on the cross, who was fulfilling his own destiny through his suffering. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. We thirst, O God, for your Son, who thirsted for us. So we recognize his humanity, his suffering, as he says, I thirst. We recognize his sovereignty as he fulfills his commission. And in his thirst, Christ is relief. And that is the best of news as well. Reminding us that he is working for good in all things toward redemption. But the question for you and I this morning is this. Do you and I thirst for him as we should? Are you thirsting for him in your own life? He told the woman at that well in Sychar that he was the fount of life. And if, he, if she drank from that well, she would never thirst again. And that was the greatest of gifts. And it's the greatest of gifts that you and I have been offered. But the question is, have you thirsted for him lately? I love the beautiful, beautiful verse that we've already heard this morning from Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Oh, when can I go and meet with God? Do you have that sense of yearning in your own walk today? Does that really reflect your sense of, of longing, of yearning for God? Or has your passion for God waned somewhat? Has it blown dry to some degree? Is it rather arid, dried up? It's no longer breathing life. I do sometimes worry about where we live, and I envy those who live elsewhere. Just this past week, as we know, a Catholics elected a new pontiff, and it's the first pope to be from the Americas, first one to be from the Southern Hemisphere. And I heard on the radio interview about um, uh, just commenting on this was a gentleman from Catholic University of America who is supposedly the, the leading American authority on the Vatican. And it was interesting what he said because, folks, we have talked about that here for the last four or five years, how he said this, I really do think that it's significant that this man is from Argentina, that he's from the Southern Hemisphere, because it's not going to be long, and he was referring it uh, uh, in, in a more particular way to Catholics. He said, I think very soon Catholics from the South are going to be coming to the North to evangelize us and reignite our own flame of faith. Well, let's, let's expand that to the church universal, because you and I have talked about this with the new Christendom, the next Christendom, as Philip Jenkins refers to it. It's not going to be long at all, not long at all, before folks from the Southern Hemisphere, where Christianity is on fire, will come to the Northern Hemisphere to America and Canada and Europe and other places, and we will be the sources of evangelism. Or not the sources, I should say. We should be the targets of evangelism at that point. Because our passion collectively has waned a good bit. 
And as a people group, we should be envious of those where there is such spiritual ferment these days. And it's in the Southern Hemisphere. It's in South America. It's in Africa. It's in parts of Southeast Asia. That's where it's really happening. And and, and I lament that and I grieve over that. Recently, I, I read an interview with Philip Yancey, that wonderful, wonderful writer. And they said to him, you have witnessed firsthand, haven't you, how in the Southern Hemisphere, Christianity is just just thriving. There's such a passion there. There's such a yearning for God. And it's not so much up here in the North. What's going on? I was grieved by what Yancey said. He said, you want to know my theory? God goes where he's wanted. And I grieved over that. I grieved over that statement. And I know he's trying to make a point. God is no doubt wanted here as well. But he's saying that collectively... We have lost some of our thirst as a people for God. Lost a bit of that sense of longing. But let me ask you personally, what about you? Have you been thirsty for him lately? Have you had that longing? Or have you been distracted by other thirsts? And you know the list. Need I even go through it? Whether it's your schedule or social life, whether it's your work, school, money, sports, leisure, whatever it might be. Has some other thirst gotten in the way? It could even be some sin in your life. Has some other thirst gotten in the way of your thirsting for him as you really, really deep down want to? And I can't help but ask the question, how do you and I get back to that sense of longing? And you know that common list that will be dished out as well. Maybe some more Bible study. Maybe practicing some of the spiritual disciplines that we have talked about here at Brookwood. Maybe it's through prayer. Maybe it's through uh, joining a small group that can, that can really challenge you and kind of reignite your faith. We have those opportunities now with these community groups that we have. Where to begin, though? Let me offer up, if we have this image of Jesus thirsting on the cross, maybe what we need to do to begin to get back there is simply to give him a drink. Being willing to give Jesus a drink. What do I mean by that? Bring the whole gospel to... What is our mantra from last year? Help me. The whole church taking the whole gospel to the whole world. The whole gospel. Body, mind, and soul. And bringing it not just with our voices, but with hands and feet. Maybe reaching out to someone on a medical mission team who is so desperately in need of medical help. Or reaching out to someone in your neighborhood who has had some crisis come their way. Reaching out to someone here in this church who has gone through some terrible crisis, maybe who has lost someone, grieving over that, grieving over a broken relationship, whatever it might be, maybe that's where it needs to start. We need to forget ourselves a little bit and our own peculiar thirsts that are really egocentric and step outside and offer Jesus a drink because when we reach out to those around us, we are offering Jesus a drink. We are helping to parch his thirst. I think maybe that's where we can begin by giving the Savior a drink because that is what we're doing as we reach out for those in need. And I think that's where you can begin to find your way back, not just to the whole gospel, with with a living, breathing relationship with the living Christ. And starting now, not waiting until tomorrow, I think sometimes we are guilty of living as if the kingdom of God is really all about tomorrow and not today. But it begins now. The kingdom is here now. We should begin serving him here now, reaching out to other people now, reveling in this eternal relationship even now. I love the way Chris C. put it. Chris is a 
wonderful pastor of an, of an urban church in Houston called Ecclesia. I don't know if you've ever heard of Chris. He's a marvelous, marvelous pastor. And, and he puts this so well, I'm just going to read this. He, he was in church one Sunday and preached about the kingdom in the future. Let me just read this. He said, one week I was preaching in our church about the kingdom that is coming. And on the way out, a young man grabbed me. And he said, Pastor, the kingdom of God is already here. He said, every day, every Sunday, I used to be in the same neighborhood, and I used to come down here to a bar called Emo's. And I'd start every night with a drop of ecstasy on my tongue and wash it down with Bacardi 151. That's what I used to do, Sunday after Sunday, and then I found Jesus. Now I come to a worship service instead, and I finish the evening with the body of Christ on my tongue, and I wash it down with the blood of Christ. This is the kingdom of God now, Pastor. Great word. And he's using that powerful, vivid imagery to say that is how we should be living, with the body of Christ on our tongue and the blood of Christ washing down upon us. And it is. The kingdom of God is now. But how willing are you and I to live in it and be thirsty for it even now? Pray the Lord's Prayer that, that, that your will in heaven will be brought down to earth. Is the body of Christ on your tongue? Is the blood of Christ something for which, in a sense, figuratively speaking, you thirst because of what he offered to you? It would be great if we could get back to the point of echoing the words of the woman at the well who said, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty ever again and have to keep coming here to draw water. Let me ask you, where are you drawing your water today? Really? Is it friends? Is it family? Those are important. Those are great. Is it finances? Is it, is it leisure time? Is it your work? What is the well from which you are drawing today? And might it be the very distraction, the very obstacle that's keeping you from drawing from the very fount of life itself? The one, yes, who hung there on the cross in incredible thirst for you. In suffering humanity and in amazing sovereignty. Maybe it's time for you and I to stop drawing from the wrong places. Drawing water from the wrong places. And draw it from him. And with that word I want to ask that you stand one more time. So we can read the final litany which David will read. And if you would remain standing. Immediately following his reading. And as we have been doing, let's read together the words in bold. We thirst, O God, for your Son who thirsted for us. He thirsted to save us. Let us thirst to serve him. Let us thirst to praise him. Let us thirst to be with him. We thirst, O God, for your Son who is the very fountain of life through whom we will never thirst. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. We thirst, O oh God, for your Son, 
who thirsted for us. Let me just offer the invitation now. If you feel so led to make some kind of public decision this day, we invite you to do that. You might want to be moving your membership to this church. You might feel led to be publicly baptized as an expression of your faith, dying to Christ, being raised to new life. You might want to make a profession of faith uh, for the first time saying, I want to be a follower of this one who hung on the cross and thirsted for me. Whatever decision it is that you want to make, we invite you forward in just a moment as we begin singing together.